0: Today is June eighteenth, 2018, and before we begin, I want to let listeners know we have redesigned the econtalk.org website. Please check it out. There's a new player. has different speeds. There's a chance to rate each episode. The whole thing will look nicer on your phone. Uh, the formatting of the comments is beautiful, as are the highlights. So uh, please check it out, uh, econtalk.org. Now for today's guest, journalist and author Michael Polan. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Michael, welcome to EconTalk.
1: Thank you, Russ. Good to be here.
0: And I do want to let parents know, uh, it should be obvious from the title of Michael's book, or at least the subtitle, this conversation is going to deal with what are sometimes described as hallucinogenic drugs, in particular LSD and psilocybin. You may want to screen this episode before sharing with your kids. Okay. Uh, This book shook me up in all kinds of ways that I hope we'll cover in our conversation, Michael. One way it shook me up is I discovered that there was serious scientific exploration of psychedelic drugs in the 1950s and 60s uh give us a sketch of of what that research was
1: looking at yeah i was surprised too frankly um for most of us i think psychedelics the history of psychedelics begins in the 60s you know with timothy leary and that whole scene um but i was surprised to learn that there was a very uh, lively productive period of research for more than 10 years before uh timothy leary ever tried psychedelics um which doesn't happen until 1960 um the drugs are uh, – well, LSD is invented uh, – you can either say in the 30s when it was synthesized, but it wasn't realized what it was till the 40s. Um, Albert Hoffman uh, was, a, was a, um, a chemist at Sandoz, and he was looking for a new drug for, to treat women in childbirth, to staunch bleeding, I believe it was. He accidentally hits on this. Uh, he's working with ergotamine, which is this chemical that's produced by a fungus called ergot, which is, infects grain and and actually has an interesting role to play in European history. Um, but he realizes by accidentally ingesting a tiny bit that he's got this powerful psychoactive substance. He has no idea what to do with it, however, or what it's good for, if anything. So Sandoz does something really unusual. They, um, they essentially crowdsource a 10-year or 15-year research program offering LSD-25, as it was known, to any researcher or therapist who agrees to uh, report back on what they learn. And um, so, they, uh, so anybody with good stationery basically could get a, a lot of LSD if they were willing to, uh, for free, if they were willing to report back. So all through the 50s, you have this effort to define what it might be good for and apply it uh, therapeutically. And what they discover, um, and this happens by about the mid-50s, is that it seems to be effective in treating addiction. Uh, in treating, uh, especially alcoholism, uh, depression, anxiety, obsession, um, a whole range of, of um, forms of mental illness, uh, although they also try it on schizophrenia with somewhat less success. Um, and uh, But this is going on in England, in Canada, in the United States, and many people in the psychiatric community think that this may be a wonder drug. Um, it also teaches us really interesting things about the mind. Um, We did not really understand the chemistry of the mind before LSD, Um, and the fact that there were receptors and neurotransmitters, that whole area of research really was opened up by the study of LSD. So it's this very important drug, It's, it's legal at this point, there's no stigma attached to it, and it looks like it's gonna help us treat people with mental illness. And then what changes? Uh, The 60s. Um, Basically, in the 1960s, the drug becomes very popular in the counterculture. Um, Timothy Leary, who had been a scientist, kind of loses patience with science and uh, is so excited about the possibilities of this drug, which, by the way, is an occupational hazard for just about anyone who studies it, this irrational exuberance. Um, that he basically loses interest in treating individuals and decides he wants to treat the whole of society, um, which you know we don't really have a paradigm for, for prescribing a drug. <laughs> yes, with the exception of fluoride, it yeah. is one drug we apply to all of society. Um, but he becomes an evangelist, and uh, but he's not the only one. It's, it's it's it isn't fair to blame him for all this. Um, you know, on the west coast, Ken Kesey, the writer uh tries LSD, actually uh, on the government dime. He was, um, he was dosed as part of a CIA research experiment in uh, the early 60s and, and decides also that this is a very powerful tool that everybody needs to have. And he gives it out uh, in these acid tests in the Bay Area. Um, and also even before that, uh, Cary Grant had given an interview about his very successful treatment, or as he deemed it himself – very successful treatment with LSD in LA in the 50s and gives this interview where he's kind of raving about it. And that too is exciting public interest. So basically the drug is embraced um, by the counterculture. It's used pretty carelessly. Um, People are taking it at parties and taking it at concerts and without much thought, they're dosing one another uh, without their knowledge, which seems to me an incredibly cruel thing to do. Um, And Gradually, what had been a great deal of support for for psychedelics on the part of both the media uh, and the psychiatric community turns into a reaction against it, a backlash, or a moral panic even. And you start hearing a lot of scare stories about people getting in trouble on the drugs, they're having psychotic episodes, they're jumping out of windows, they're staring at the sun till they go blind. Not all of this is true. A lot of it are really scare stories. And the press turns against it, and by 1965, you have this, you know, moral panic against LSD and psilocybin that quickly results in their uh, prohibition, um, which is not complete till 1970. But in 1966, they're made illegal in California and some other states. And the researchers basically get a little chicken about uh, studying it. And even though they they were getting good results and you know, were very committed, I, I I don't think they were willing to go up against this powerful Public and government tide of of opposition, and so gradually the research dries up. And by the early seventies, that's it. Uh, we, you know, this promising avenue of research is choked off. And we both and mentioned
0: we both mentioned psilocybin. Explain what that is.
1: Yeah, psilocybin is the chemical in magic mushrooms, um, and this is a, a, a psychedelic that is um, kind of widely available. These mushrooms grow in many places, and um, it was not known though in the West. Until 1957, and that's when Gordon Wasson, who is an amateur mycologist and a banker, actually at J.P. Morgan, goes mushroom expert, expert of mycology, mushroom expert, yes, uh, goes to um, Oaxaca in Mexico, and he's heard rumors that there are mushroom cults that have survived in Mexico since the Spanish conquest. It's quite incredible. Uh, when the when the Spanish came to uh, Mexico, they found uh, the, the the Aztecs and other um, native peoples using mushrooms as a sacrament. Uh, they called it teonantacatl, flesh of the gods. Uh, and they uh they regarded this as pagan. They were they felt very threatened by it um, because it was a, in some ways a superior sacrament to their own, since you didn't really need faith to uh to make contact with God. You just uh you could actually talk to him on the mushrooms. And so they crushed this uh religion and it went underground and survived for 500 years, um, coming back to attention in in uh, with the with this big 15 page article in Life Magazine that Wasson writes in 1957. Um, so um, I should just mention,
0: of course, to yeah. listeners that many mushrooms are poisonous; will kill you. Do not go out into the woods eating mushrooms that you don't understand. And uh, LSD is illegal. We are not encouraging anyone to do anything illegal. And that's a disclaimer I think also a similar one is at the front of your book but carry on
1: yeah um, LSD is now illegal and psilocybin is illegal also um, however they are you know they can be used by researchers and they are being used in uh, you know in in research trials
0: so how did those drugs come back in 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 that's in scientific study what, what changed after that scare in the 60s which I remember vividly as a teenager that these were horrible drugs. They drove you crazy, and you shouldn't touch them. And yeah. uh, that was very effective.
1: Um, it was. It scared it scared a lot of people off them. I mean, there still was a counterculture where they were used, but uh, I was scared, certainly. I, I didn't mess around with them at that age. Um, I believe the the horror stories. Um, but there was always a group of people who were faithful to psychedelics and were convinced that they had value for society, whether as spiritual aids uh, or as uh, therapeutic aids uh, or as just a means of, you know, exploring consciousness uh, individually or as a, you know, as a species. And so they, they kind of, you know, um, kept the fire burning. And we had this hiatus of about 25 or 30 years where no research takes place in the United States. Uh, and Beginning in the early 90s, a group of people who uh, consisted of some therapists, some activists, some people whose lives had been changed by psychedelics in in positive ways, began uh, organizing to see if they could perhaps restart the research. There's a series of meetings that takes place at Esalen, which is a uh, – uh, I mean, to call it a conference center is to kind of trivialize, it, <laughs> yes. but, but it's this gorgeous. That's <laughs> yeah, hilarious, but yeah, it's, it is
0: a conference center. But yeah,
1: I guess technically it is. Yeah, um, but it's, it's a retreat a,
0: center. It's a yeah, happening. and it's right on the
1: coast of uh, California and Big Sur. It kind of leans out over the Pacific Ocean in this precarious way, and it's gorgeous. I've been there once, and um, it it has been a center of the human potential movement. Um, you know, if the if the new age. Uh, and human potential movement had a capital, that would be excellent. And so they start having a series of meetings there. And L- and LSD therapy had been developed there and to some extent. And um, they start um, figuring out how they might bring it back. And um, I, tell th- I focus on a man named Bob Jesse in my narrative, who is a um, computer engineer. Uh, he had been at Oracle. He had some very meaningful psychedelic experiences um, in his 20s. And um, he organizes a group of people, uh, which, you know, a range from religious scholars to uh, therapists to a former head of uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse. And they start, you know, uh, coming up with some plans of what would you study? How would you go about it? Uh, Jesse has some money and he raises some more money. And he then uh, approaches some researchers and is introduced to a man at – Johns Hopkins, a very prestigious, um, uh, well-regarded uh, drug researcher named Roland Griffiths, who'd been studying, you know, drugs of abuse for a long time. As it happened, Roland had had a powerful mystical experience of his own in his meditation practice. He was not—he was not using psychedelics, but he was a very serious meditator and had been exposed to some ideas about consciousness that he couldn't explain through. Uh, You know, the usual scientific explanations. So uh, when Bob Jesse and Roland Griffith meet, um, that's really the beginning, I think, of of modern research. There's there's a few other things going on, too. Um, But there was a change of attitude at the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration. Um, and a new hire there, who happens to have been a former student of Roland Griffiths, says that uh, he will henceforth look at proposals to, to study psychedelics as if it were any other drug, leaving aside its history, leaving aside its uh, legal status. And so that kind of opens the door, and Bob Jesse and Roland Griffiths step through it. And, um and they they revive this science uh, after this period of dormancy, and and really, my book is the story of that renaissance. Um, well, and- that's
0: part of your book. The part I want to I want to turn, and it's fascinating. It, the book is um, is a it's a great read. It's, you're a great writer, but the reason it's a fascinating book is that if it were just that history, it'd be, a, it'd be a good book. But it's a great book because it intersperses that history with your own experiences, which we'll talk about in a minute along with a lot of, to me, fascinating questions about science, consciousness, um, materialism, and, and so on. One thing I think we need to make clear before we, we go any further is that I think when most people, as I would have before I read your book, when you say, well, people are using LSD for therapy or for, to help people with addiction or, or they lead to meaningful experiences, I think what people have the idea is that they just, the people who are evangelistic, are evangelical about it are high quote all the time that this is just they're living in an alternative world quote you know like like a per, like a perpetual uh, drunken spree but what what your book is mainly highlights are experiences that people had sometimes just once uh, yeah. and and that many of the therapeutic applications of the drugs for addiction for fear of death uh are are just a one-time use, which is just not what I would have had in mind. And the second thing I think we have to make clear is what the experience is for many of these people that is often described as spiritual or religious, transcendent. Try to give us some flavor of how people report on this and to why why they become evangelical about it. Because when I – if you told me this before I read the book, I would have said, well, sure, when people get drunk, they like to have have other people drink with them or when – you know, yeah. people get high, it's fun, or, or they want to share that experience. But this is something really extraordinary that I had no Very idea different. about. Yeah, so try to give the flavor yeah. of
1: that. Yeah, it's not about being high. And and what is striking about these uh, drugs
0: And they're not that, addictive. That's another crazy thing that I wasn't prepared for, right?
1: Yeah, a few things you should know about them. First, um, yes, a single experience or two really is all we're talking about. And that, that experience can be so powerful that it really is transformative of people's outlooks and, and even – to some extent, their personalities. Um, the, um, uh, the other thing that's important to understand is you're not just taking a pill. Um, you're having a guided experience. Um, so when you when we talk about psychedelic therapy, we really should be saying psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So the way it works in a therapeutic context, and this was a context really created in the, way back in the 1950s, is that you're with a guide or a therapist the entire time. They take great pains to prepare you for the experience because it can be very disruptive. Um, and so they tell you what to expect. They tell you how to um, what to do if you get into trouble, if you have a period of great anxiety or you see something really scary. Um, a lot of it involves uh, encouraging you to surrender to whatever happens. And that the so-called bad trip, is often what occurs when someone resists what they're feeling uh, which might be a sensation of going crazy or their ego dissolving or um, uh, you know that they're dying they, they think that they're dying and and the best advice is go with it if you go with it it'll turn into something more positive Um, And then the guide is with you the entire time. They don't say very much, but they're present and give you a sense of safety because you're going to be in a very vulnerable situation. Your your ego defenses will be disarmed completely. And so you have to feel safe or you're going to feel very um, uh, paranoid or anxious. And then after the experience, which can go on for somewhere between six hours uh, on psilocybin to 10 hours on on LSD – um, after the experience, they help you integrate it, make sense of what happened, and see if you can't extract any lessons that you can apply to your life. So this, this way of administering the drugs is um, very different than the image I think people have of, of recreational use of psychedelics. The other thing you should know is you're wearing eye shades uh, during the whole experience, which is encourages you to go inside. It's a very internal journey. You're not just kind of you know, grooving on uh, on the waves at the beach or the trees in the forest. You're you're really examining your life and you're 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 going into your mind and into your body, as happens in the case of many of the cancer patients. Um, so it's uh, it's important to understand that and that you know it doesn't necessarily work without the therapists. Um, it is a package that we're talking about, um, even though you know it doesn't happen without the chemicals. But the other interesting point about this is that you're really prescribing an experience to someone, not just a chemical. In other words, people can have a reaction and and feel like they're hallucinating and all this kind of stuff, but it really is only if you have what is sometimes referred to as a mystical experience or an ego-dissolving experience this, this sensation of yourself merging into something larger, that that, appears, that experience appears to be the best predictor of a, of a positive therapeutic outcome. And it doesn't always happen. It seems to happen in about two-thirds of the people who, uh, who have one of these guided journeys.
0: Well, I want to focus on those two-thirds because obviously one of the themes of the book is that it's hard to put the experience into words. Uh, yes, ineffable. It's ineffable. One of my favorite words. Um, But do your best to give an idea of what's in those two thirds of the of the experiences that go well or somewhat whatever you would call well. um, There's a certain set of common experiences which is fascinating, actually, that people experience um, across the board. What are some of those common spiritual slash transcendent experiences?
1: Well, on a high dose uh, psychedelic journey, um, the most common thing is what I described earlier, which is the sense of yourself dissolving, and that, you're the, the, that you know what your ego is doing in everyday life is kind of like patrolling the borders between you and other people, you and the natural world, subject and object. And this is a very important function, and it gives us—it uh, helps reinforce this idea that we are distinct individuals with some kind of continuity over time. But to to realize, as the Buddhists have been teaching us for a long time, that perhaps that is an illusion, and that um, uh, it can it can um, vanish or evaporate, um, is a very uh, destabilizing experience, which can be terrifying if you're not prepared for it and you resist it. But it can also be ecstatic. Um, and, you know, this sense of merging into something larger is often filled with feelings of love, connection to nature, uh, this sense of um, oneness, uh, what William James called unity of consciousness. Um, and it can be absolutely thrilling and and surprising because I think most of us assume we're identical to our egos and that that chattering voice in our head telling us what to do, criticizing us. um, That's me. me. Yeah, (laughs) that's me. And we're continuous with that. But to to realize that can go away, as it did in one of my journeys. um, And yet you survive and that there is this other um, perspective that's very um, disinterested, yet compassionate uh, not invested in any strong emotions, and it 's just kind of observing this this disembodied awareness is actually a kind of liberating perspective i don 't know what it is i don 't know what generates it. I mean some, you know some people are convinced Aldous Huxley was convinced that that is the mind at large, some kind of um, conscious field of consciousness that exists outside of the brain uh, that, that we can um, take part in. Um, I tend to assume that any form of consciousness is generated by my brain, um, called me the old fashioned but um, that seems like a more parsimonious explanation. But many people don't, you know, there's very serious physicists and um, uh, philosophers who think that, no, consciousness may be one of the building blocks of reality, along with, you know, electromagnetism and gravity and light, um, so uh, yeah, we should at least keep an open mind. But at any rate, this other perspective, which people can achieve through meditation also, um, is a very uh, liberating thing. And I think it really is, uh, it provides comfort, especially to the dying. And and to me, the most moving accounts of psychedelic experience have been on the part of people who had terminal diagnoses. And I interviewed several of them. And um, that they were able to really reset their, uh, their thinking about their death and what it meant to them. And, and in many cases to die with a, with a a remarkable equanimity, um, that I just could not, um, you know, seemed just remarkable to me. And, it's
0: it's one, it's one thing to say I had a transcendent experience. It's like, so you take a trip to Yosemite, which is one of my favorite places in the world, and, and mm, you, you like can have a, you can have a transcendent experience there. I, off, I try to, um, just from looking at the nighttime sky there, which is very different than my nighttime sky in suburban Maryland. Um, but it doesn't usually change how you behave afterward, and yet many of these people you're talking about right now, people who are diagnosed with cancer. Others are, are healthy people who just go through this experience. It The effects last beyond the – Experience and not just, oh, I remember that, it changes how they interact with with other people to some extent
1: yeah and that 's one of the most remarkable things uh, to to different degrees i mean the the depressed patients who've had these experiences, their depression lifts for a, a matter of months, uh, but then they they subside again to many of the cancer patients, the changes were um, you know more enduring um, six months out, they still had um, uh, you know, measurable reductions in, uh, anxiety and depression, um, that, that were sustained. And in the case of some of the addicts that I talked to, people trying to quit smoking, for example, a year out, they were still abstinent. 67% of them were abstinent. So, um, I think it depends on, uh, you know, on the individual and on what you're being treated for. Um, how is that happening we don 't really know. I mean, we do know that during the psychedelic experience, the brain is temporarily rewired. I mean this has been mapped. there are a great deal of, of new connections spring up between parts of the brain that don 't ordinarily talk to one another and I show one of these maps in the book um, and some of those new connections may or may not endure what the work that needs to be done and is being done now, is imaging the brains of of people before and after the psychedelic experience to see if there are any persistent changes. Um, But if you measure psychological changes uh, through you know, the usual methods of uh, surveys and questionnaires, they have found measurable changes in the, in the personality trait called openness. Um, that's your ability to, um, take in new ideas, uh, deal with new people and unusual perspectives. Uh, it's, it correlates with creativity and this, this aspect of personality does seem to change in measurable ways. Even in adult's and that's very unusual. For the most part, adult personality is fixed in your early 20s and never changes. Um, but psychedelic experience appears to have the potential to change it. And so, in an, and in a positive direction, openness is generally considered a positive character trait.
0: So one of the challenges of this research, which you're very open about in the book, um, and I, I, I can't know how even-handed you are in the book, but you come across as even-handed – so congratulations. Thank uh you. Sure, you know there's a, you have skepticism you realize that some of the people reporting these results have an axe to grind they want these drugs to be more available. Uh you mentioned for example uh patients facing their death with more equanimity that's that's a beautiful thing. Uh, maybe we don't hear about the ones who go you know start raving crazy after the use of the drug and and have horrible worse experiences down the stretch. Perhaps. So that's always the well, worry in these well, kind of Well it's
1: worth pointing out though that no one in the clinical trials, and that represents about a thousand people who have been uh, given psychedelics in a, in this controlled setting, in university trials. There have been no serious adverse events, so no one's gone crazy in that cohort. At least in
0: the formal sense of gone crazy, but maybe they have a right. ability, maybe they just their view becomes bleaker, I, you know, and that's in the one, the one third maybe that don't have this soothing release after the experience. Maybe they have a really bad experience. I don't know, right?
1: Yeah, well, some of them, uh, you know, many people had patches of bad experience. I think it's it's important to know it's not all sweetness and light. People went into their bodies and confronted their cancer. They had moments of great terror, um, but they were succeeded by other moments. So the so-called bad trip, you know, which the therapists prefer to, prefer to call a challenging trip, can actually be very productive. Um, but... You know, yes, people you know react with um, uh, you know episodes of great anxiety and upset. Um, but on balance, if you ask them afterwards, most of them are you know very happy they had the experience and they found it very productive. Um, outside of this clinical situation, some people have had psychotic episodes, and there are no doubt some cases of suicide that you can link to an LSD trip. Um, so there are risks associated. You asked me a little earlier about this. Um, and I, and I was very, you know, personally nervous about doing this, uh, having these experiences. So I I did my due diligence as a journalist (laughs) and I, and I looked at the whole question of risk and it's, it's really interesting. First physiological risk. If we wanted to divide it into physiological and psychological risk, physiologically, LSD and psilocybin are um, remarkably non-toxic drugs. Um, There doesn't appear to be a lethal dose of either. And you should know that there's a lethal dose of many over-the-counter medicines in your medicine cabinet right now. Um, You know, painkillers and Antihistamines, all this kind of stuff, you know, is, is more toxic than LSD. Which is, which I was so surprised to learn that they're also not addictive. Um, that these are not drugs of abuse in that sense, and that um, the if you set up, uh, you know, that classic test where you put a rat in a cage and you give it a lever that administers drugs to its bloodstream, uh, or another one that gives food, um, and if you if you put cocaine in that setup. The, the, the mouse or the rat will press the lever over and over and over again until it dies, uh, and as with well, heroin, it will as well some it. humans, unfortunately, yeah, and as tragically. well, yeah, without question. Um, but if you if you do the setup with LSD, the rat will press the lever once and then never again. Uh, it's just too. Disturbing an experience to, um, and your reaction after having a big psychedelic experience is not where can I get some more? It's just like, do I ever have to do this again? It's it's just too intense. But so the other, yeah, there's no that, physical that, mechanism for addiction either in it.
0: That, that rat, of course, after that one time, loves all the other rats in a very beautiful <laughs> and poetic way. Uh,
1: I don't know that rats know how to process the experience. Yeah. My guess is, it's love, just to, terrifying know. To, love to
0: know. Love to know. Let's. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about your experiences. Um, I, you know, you mentioned, I, I think without reading the book, it's hard – or being a, an intense meditator, which I have been from time to time. I think it's very hard to understand what you mean by the dissolving of the ego. So perhaps you can tell us in general what you experienced. You, you tried LSD, psilocybin, and toad something. Um, talk about that generally, but in specific, I'd like you to – if, you, if yeah. you care to – Tell us about when you were listening to the Bach and, and the, the way the cello sounded to you and what you were experiencing. Because I thought that was really – was amazing.
1: Yeah. Well, that was my um, second guided journey, and that was on psilocybin. And I was trying to do the same dose that was being used in the clinical trials to get a sense of what the people I'd been interviewing were feeling. And um, at a certain point during that experience where I was on the, you know, the, the maximum dose was about four grams of dried mushrooms – um, I looked out and I saw myself, and I know this is going to sound weird, kind of uh, explode into a sheaf of little Post-it notes in the, you know, getting blown around in the air. And this other eye opened up that was observing this scene, and but it was clearly me. Yet I was fine with it. I had no desire to pile those little slips of paper back together and in, in, to, to reconstitute myself. Um, and then I looked out again, and I saw this self recognisable as me spread out over the landscape like a coat of paint or butter. I mean, very thinly spread. Um, and again, I was untroubled by it. And I, I, the usual borders between me and the world had had vanished. And um, it was the most uncanny thing. It didn't feel bad. It felt fine i mean it didn 't feel ecstatic, it felt fine, but as time went on, I did, as you alluded to, had this experience with music i i, I was having a lot of arguments with my guide about music. she was putting this <laughs> playing this new age music that just seemed i don 't know trivial for for what the experience I was having. It was the kind of music you might hear when you, you know at a high end spa when you 're getting a massage. And um, so I finally said, can we put on some classical music? And, she, and we agreed on a piece by Bach, uh, who uh, has these gorgeous unaccompanied cello suites that Yo-Yo Ma uh, had recorded. And she put on one. It was the number two in D minor, which is one of the saddest pieces of music I've ever heard. And, um, I, and in fact, I'd heard it before at funerals. Um, and I listened to this music, in a way, I'd never listened to any music before. Indeed, the verb listen just doesn't do justice to what was a, a complete um, uh, merging with the music itself. It became me. Uh, I, at one point, I felt like I was inside that well of space inside the cello. And um, it was my mouth. It was my skull. And I, and I felt the, um, the bow... Uh, with the horsehair going over the strings right above me, and I and I and I and it was as if that friction—I could feel that friction. I was the cello, and then I was the music, and it was—it uh, was just a, uh, a wonderful experience. It wasn't all happy because it was all about death. The music <laughs> was about death. I'd been contemplating death, but it was so beautiful that it reconciled me to death. It made me feel like I'd been lifted you know, past the point of any kind of suffering or regret. And and I felt that if I were to die at that moment, it would be fine. And I think this gave me a little bit of the insight into what the cancer patients were feeling, um, this, this sense that... Um, that, you know, what makes it, I think, particularly hard for us to die is we're individuals, and we have a very strong sense of individuality, that we attachment. are bounded. Attachment. And this and we're bounded by this skin and bones, this, this meat sack we're in, and that the loss of that is the loss of everything. But if you identify with something larger than that, uh, whether it's the natural world or your offspring and your family, your community um, – Suddenly, your own personal extinction doesn't matter in quite the same way. And, um, you know, this is an idea that Bertrand Russell wrote about. Uh, somebody asked him, how, how do you die well? How does one die well? And he said it was really a question of expanding your your sense of what is yourself. How, how broad is that? Is it just your body or is it something larger? Is it your, the ideas you're invested in? It could even be your um, your sense of the nation you're part of, you know, whatever it is. And to the extent you can expand that late in your life, um, that makes death uh, easier to contemplate. I I think, you know, if you go back before Western civilization, you know, before the the, the strong sense of the individual that we have gotten from uh, the Enlightenment and from capitalism um, and the whole ideology of American individualism, my guess is dying meant something different then. Um, and was was less tragic in some sense. Um, well, so certainly. The psych- go yeah, ahead. No, go ahead. The psychedelics kind of put you in touch with that kind of more that broader sense of self, um, and um, and that that's a very powerful thing. And as you suggest, meditation does that too, uh, without question. There there are remarkable similarities between psychedelic experience and uh, the experienced meditator. And in fact, when you scan the brains of both. Someone on psilocybin or LSD or someone who is um, meditating, um, you know, someone with a lot of experience meditating in an fMRI, their scans look very similar. Very, the same parts of the brain are deactivated. Um, and so that that consciousness is, a you know, psychedelics is not the only path to achieving that consciousness.
0: So, I want to come to meditation a minute, but before I do, I want to stop on that set of observations you made about your own personal experience you also talk about the incredible love that you felt for your family your gratitude um, which is also can be common in, in meditation yeah
1: uh, and is and is part of that sense of connection i think i mean that comes when the ego defenses come down yep instead of patrolling this border they're opening these channels are being opened, and what flows through those channels very often is love and gratitude
0: and again, that, that that can persist after the experience uh, is is fascinating. It's 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 obvious uh, when you tell someone or you tell yourself, boy, I'm lucky. I have a wonderful wife. I have incredible children, uh, which I do feel blessed to have. That's nice. Uh, but the question is, how often do you think about them? And the answer is, if your ego is big <laughs> enough, not so often. Because yeah. uh, you're really worried about me uh, a lot of the time. And I think what you're describing is, Something that gets inside you in a way that doesn't when you're just reading, say, a Hallmark card or even though these are, as you point out many times, somewhat banal and and cliched thoughts, uh, the fact that they persist is not banal or, or, or unimportant.
1: Yeah, well, you know, the line, one of the things you learn is the line between profundity and banality is very fine. <laughs> it and, sure is. And our brains are tuned for novelty, you know, we're, we're, you know, with good reason. It was very adaptive to notice new things in the environment and take familiar things for granted. And one of the things that happens on psychedelics and this can happen through meditation too, is a is a deep appreciation of the familiar, uh, you know, yeah. of the of the woman you've been in a relationship with for you know thirty years, um, uh, of your children, the wonder of having children, and the wonder of love, and and so I, I work very hard in the book to describe that and kind That's of a great job, you know, I finally I, I conclude that you know. Yes, these are platitudes, that love is the most important thing. But what is a platitude? It's, it's a truth from which all the emotion has been drained. And you can resaturate that dried husk in a way, um, and psychedelics can help you do it. And suddenly you feel it with that full force, and it's, it's a wonderful thing when it happens.
0: The other thing I want to I – want, and by the way, I know some listeners have stopped listening already, but I, I, I'm sorry that they're gone. But I think a lot of people are thinking, well, this guy's crazy um, – this is obviously, and, and you would, you can see that in the book many times. You write, I feel funny writing these words, and you describe the kind of things you just described. But I think the other part of this that's so uh, fascinating, and you made the point that, you know, after, before the advent of the individual, this was common. I think before the advent of the, before the death of religion, this was also common. Yeah, when right. religion was more a part and parcel of everyday life, people were not as afraid of death. Uh, they were less potentially egotistic, or at least they were. At least encouraged to be, and we do live in a culture now. I think certainly the culture you and I live in, uh, much of it is is designed to enhance the ego rather than than subdue it. But the other part I'd like you to just reflect on, then we'll get into some philosophical and science issues. Is that, and this will lead us in there, is that you were forced through this experience to confront some of your and most of our culture's long held views about the physical and the material. Most people believe, and educated people at least, that this is all there is. We've talked about this a number of times on econ talk, that you know, the physical world, what you can measure, what you can see, consciousness is just some electric things going on in your brain. They're not just some chemical reactions. What you experience, it would could be argued as you concede many times in the book, just a drug reaction perhaps. It's nothing real. There's nothing really you're not getting access to anything deep and true. And yet, the people who undergo these experiences akin to what I would call religious ecstasy or I would call prophetic experiences uh, that mm-hmm. we have described to us, they don't think of this as like, oh, that was really fun the way we might when we say get drunk. They see it as, an, as a real thing, that they, yeah. they had an authentic, valid experience of something ultimate.
1: Yeah, and that, you know, uh, that quality, William James wrote about this in Varieties of Religious Experience, and he talked a, a lot about the mystical experience, um, which is very similar to the kind of ego dissolution I'm describing. And in fact, they, they may just be different words for the exact same yeah. thing. And one of the hallmarks of the mystical experience he wrote is something called the noetic quality, by which he meant this sense you have that what you have perceived. Uh, the the epiphanies you've had are not subjective. They're not just in your head. But th- that these are revealed truths of the universe, and you have learned something. Um, these are like tablets that have come down from you know on high, and the authority of the experience is one of the most striking things about it. And many people do emerge from the from the experience thinking they have glimpsed a beyond of some kind, a um, uh, heaven or hell or God. Um, and it's, um, you know, who are we to say that they're wrong? Um, the fact is, you know, James said about that, you know, judge, judge these experience by their fruits. Um, does it, does it you know, make someone a better person or not. Um, that's really the key, since we can't really know. But it may well be that psychedelic experience is at the root of religious experience, um, and that it it really one of the things it has contributed. Because remember, they, these drugs have been used for thousands of years in a great many different cultures. And they do nurture the idea of a beyond, of an of another world besides the one that presents itself to our senses that we th- we normally think is the only one. Um, and that's a very uh, to have that experience is is um, you know it's it's an experience, and um, people interpret it different ways. Though, I mean, there there have been. Um, uh, to give you an example, so you can you can put a religious gloss on that and say, well, I, I witnessed the beyond. You know, I, I had a glimpse of heaven or this this plane of consciousness that survives us after we die. And you can think of that, whatever you will. But then um, Carlo Rovelli, who's an Italian physicist, gave an interview recently. Uh, he wrote seven brief lessons on physics, and he's a you know, prominent Italian physicist. He said he had had an LSD experience uh, when he was 15 or 17 that actually had opened up physics to him and that he had an experience of time where uh, it was no longer past, present and future, but it was kind of more like space and you could go in any direction and the present was eternal. And, um, and after the experience was over, he said, well, how do I know that that experience is false? And my everyday experience of time as, you know, having an linear. arrow and yeah. going in one direction and linear is right. And in fact, physics Tells us it's not right that there is a beyond, that there is a whole other structure to reality that's very different than the one we perceive, and so he he came out of the experience with a with a healthy appreciation of a um, of a beyond, a scientific beyond. Um, so it's you know this takes us into very interesting areas and very exciting. I you know I don't I don't pretend to have the answer to what's going on. Um, but uh it is important one of the things it does is it kind of relativizes everyday normal consciousness that we take as the whole kit yeah. and caboodle. uh and in fact it's not that there are other forms of consciousness that are available to us the truth value of this one over that one is you know that's a that's a matter to for be debate de- yeah to be determined yeah to I, be determined yeah i
0: i was struck by um the braveness of your book um some of the things you write must have been um, well they're very vulnerable they make you very vulnerable so obviously they're partly the result of your experience but uh, certainly friends of yours and others have sneered I'm, I suspect at some of your claims and, and thoughts have you experienced that?
1: no actually oh, people nice. have been We're remarkably good <laughs> yeah I guess so I, I know, I'm meeting the wrong people yeah um, <laughs> You know, people have taken it uh, – you know, I, I've tried to be very matter-of-fact about some very yep. personal issues, uh, about my experiences, how how weird they were, but how also how profound they were. And I find that to the extent you are matter-of-fact about such matters, other people are too, uh, and they kind of take their cues. Whether I'm talking to, a, you know, someone interviewing me on television or a friend um, – People tend to take you on your own terms. I think maybe behind your back they they have another take. But I, I resolved when I was doing this to write as honest a book as I could and not be concerned about how I looked or um, you know I, I did have a public reputation and um, and but I, you can't explore this realm without revealing something about who you are and revealing your vulnerabilities and things like that. So I just decided surrender i mean in a way you know the same advice i'd gotten about the psychedelic experience i took to the literary experience to surrender to it be as truthful as i could tell the story to the best of my ability uh, as hard as it was in places um and so far i haven't i don't think i've paid any negative price for that at all and you get a best-selling book out of it so that's a good thing (laughs) there's that um i I reminded
0: when you're talking about the um the religious part that reminding was a a famous uh, Jewish story of four rabbis who go into the orchard, and what the orchard is isn't exactly defined. It could be a physical place, but it's generally conceded not to be a physical place. It's some kind of mystical, spiritual, out-of-body experience uh, of the four. One goes crazy. One kills himself. I think one becomes an apostate, and uh, only Rabbi Akiva, who's this giant figure, uh, you know, returns from the experience with his. Um, his well being intact and that, and I you know I mentioned the uh, the prophetic experience where prophets will talk about being swept off their feet, overwhelmed they just they're very reminiscent of the kind of experiences that you're talking about
1: yeah, and you know there there are um, remarkable similarities um, to mystical experience all through history you know one of the things, one of the experiences I had was after having my high-dose psilocybin session, there is a whole tradition of writers uh, in America and England and, and elsewhere, too, writing about their mystical experiences. You know, there's Emerson on the... On the Boston Common, who feels himself transformed into a transparent eyeball and the currents of nature are flowing through him. And there's uh, Walt Whitman in, in the early drafts of Leaves of Grass talking about this um, – alluding to this experience where he felt like God was controlling his hand in some sense. Uh, and Tennyson has them and Wordsworth. And all these experiences I, – I, I read this and I thought it was just literary conceits. You yeah. know, It just, it just had it's no – it was poetry. Yeah, it was poetic. And now I can read that and it's like, oh, that's what they're talking about. That's a real experience. <laughs> and and so it opened up this whole tradition. And I haven't read widely in it, but Meister Eckhart and um, – you know, all these uh, the medieval um, mystical experiences, um, you know, this is just a, a a line that goes through the West and, of course, the East too, Buddhism and Hinduism. And suddenly those words have meaning in a way they didn't for me, and that's very exciting. It, I feel like it's opened up this, this door that, um, you know, I've only just begun to go through.
0: I think for skeptics, either religious skeptics or psychedelic skeptics, I think they would listen to this and say uh, – yeah, those are just yeah, people are crazy sometimes. They experience things that are this but you're calling them psychedelic, mystical. They they're also could be described as psychotic. Uh people having out-of-body experiences, thinking they're communing with the divine, seeing the unity of themselves with nature. That's just some wire uh that gets crossed in the in some neuron that misfires and that's just some crazy inside the brain thing.
1: Yeah and it could be. I mean, it could be caused by the um, you know the default mode network going offline, um, which is one you know interpretation. <laughs> well, tell what right that now. say what that is, the DMN, the default mode well, network. One of the interesting findings when they began to image the brains of people on psychedelics and uh, meditators, as I mentioned earlier, they found to their surprise, that instead of the brain looking like you, know, this hotbed of new activity, a very important brain network called the default mode network. Which uh, is a tightly linked group of structures in the midline that links uh, parts of your cortex, which is your you know executive function, you know the most recent part of the brain, uh, with older, deeper uh, centers of memory and emotion and this is a very important hub and it's also a regulator of of you know global brain activity, and this goes quiet this is down regulated during the experience, and that was really interesting and indeed the more down it was the more likely someone was to report an experience of ego dissolution so the default mode network is involved it appears in generating this sense of self that we have uh it's where we where self-reflection appears to take place and self-criticism time travel the ability to think about the future of the past Um, uh, theory of mind, uh, the ability to imagine the mental state of another, which is very important to moral reasoning, obviously, and compassion and empathy, Um, and also something called the uh, narrative or experiential or autobiographical self. And this is the kind of part of the brain that where we um, essentially generate stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Our self-narrative. yeah self narrative that gives us this sense that we're a continuous person over time, which is um you know a hard one thing because we're not yeah <laughs> and um and so when you take this offline for a period of time, interesting things happen in the brain your your barrier between self and other comes down, and you have this sense of merging, but you also have other interesting things happen, and that is that the brain um parts of the brain that don't ordinarily talk to one another that usually just go through the grand central station of the default mode network, start striking up conversations with one another. And so you, ha- you might have, for example, uh, your sense of smell talking to your sense of sound, and, 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 and that may manifest as uh, what's called synesthesia, the, the the cross-wiring of senses that happens very often on psychedelic experience where you can see sounds or smell them. And, um, and we don't know what else happens, though. I mean, we've mapped this new communication but those new lines of communication may be new insights, maybe metaphors, maybe just new ways to connect the dots. Um, they may have implications for creativity, uh, insight. You know, we don't know. I mean, there's so much more to be learned. And what's exciting, though, is that—and this is really my book—is as much about this as anything else—is that psychedelics are a tool for understanding the mind, a new tool uh, and an old one, um, and that. Um, that's what's most exciting—that you learn not about the psychedelics per se. That's fine; it's interesting, but you—but it's a window on the mind and on on everyday normal consciousness and on the senses and on the self. All these things are thrown into high relief by this experience.
0: Yeah, there's a obviously an incredible level of self awareness uh, that that potentially comes from it. I wanted to reflect a little bit about meditation. Uh, I've attended. Three silent meditation retreats in the last two and a half years, they were Jewish in a character with a little bit of Buddhism in terms of technique. And I thought, well, this is going to be really hard. I'll never be able to stay silent for five days. That turned out to be the easy part. The hard part was confronting myself. Um, and if I had to summarize what that experience was like, I'd say, well, they made me less egotistical, uh, more prone to being overwhelmed with awe, softened mm-hmm. me, made me more emotional. I think made me a better husband better father, better friend, made me more aware of my modes of thinking, patterns and grooves I've been stuck in, reduced a lot of visceral fears, anxieties, at times made me more, not always, but at times much more compassionate than I could have imagined myself being capable of towards both strangers and friends. And this strikes me as a pretty good summary of how you describe the the single use of a particular psychedelic drug. And other than that observation. How do we understand that? Could I have skipped those retreats and eaten a mushroom? (laughs) Uh, Is LSD or psilocybin a shortcut for those kind of experiences or for psychotherapy generally? Because I had a huge psychotherapy. I'd never been in therapy, uh, but these retreats were very, very therapeutic in forcing me to confront aspects of myself and to change the way I looked at myself. And that's similar to what you – not similar. It's the same thing.
1: it's very similar, and um, I do think that, you, that, they, that in a sense, psychedelics are a shortcut, um, but they have limitations in that you can't do it every day, um, whereas you can meditate every day. And one of the, the fruits of my own experience has been to take my meditation practice a lot more seriously and really work it, um, because I've found it is the way to reconnect with that that. Kind of consciousness I was describing earlier, you know. After I had that that big experience on psilocybin of ego dissolution and and my merging with the music, in my integration session with my guide, who in the book I call Mary, um, I told her I said I I, you know I my, my big takeaway from yesterday was the fact that I'm I'm I don't have to identify with my ego all the time. That there's another ground on which to stand and you know, meet life and, and what life throws at us. And she said to me, she said, well, isn't that, isn't that worth the price of admission? And I said, yes, it is. But on the other hand, my ego is, you know, I'm back to baseline. My ego is back in uniform yeah. and on patrol. So what good was that? And she said, well, having had a taste of another way to be, another kind of consciousness, you can cultivate that. You can nurture it. And I asked her how, and she said, through meditation." And, um, that meditation is the way you take whatever insights you've achieved on psychedelics and incorporate them in your life. And, and, I, and that was a very important lesson. I haven't done a silent retreat yet. I'm, it's something I'm very eager to do. And, you know, talk to me in a year and I think I'll be able to say more about the continuities between psychedelic experience and meditation. But, you know, the brain scans suggest that they're very similar and, uh, phenomenology too. I mean, that people describe is very similar, um, you know, uh, many of the of the most famous American Buddhists, um, you know, people like Jack Kornfeld, um, and other names are escaping my mind right now. Um, they they started on psychedelics, and they were looking for a way to sustain that kind of consciousness they had had a taste of, and they found they could do that through um, meditation, whether it was Tibetan Buddhism or Zen and um, Joan Halifax is another one, I'm sorry, who was very involved with psychedelics at a certain point in her career. Um, So, you know, and I talked to uh, a a neuroscientist and psychiatrist who studies meditation, and he can foresee a time when psychedelics might be used to kind of kickstart a meditation practice. Because one of the confusing things, if you can remember back to when you started, is like, you know, everybody's always saying, am I doing it right? (laughs) And, And I get that. And if you've had a real um, taste of the destination, and I know I shouldn't use such purposeful words, but um, striving—bad Buddhism for sure. Yeah, bad Buddhism. Um, if you, but if you've seen it, if you've had a sample, uh, it becomes much easier to find your way back to that. And, and that's certainly been my experience. Not consistently. I have to. I have to work at it. But um, but it's there, and I recognize it when I hit it. And yeah, my practice is is very uneven. Um.
0: I I struggle to meditate every day. I try to, but I don't do that successfully. And like anything else, it's, as you're saying, it's it's up and down. There are times when it's extraordinary, but many of the times, I would say most of the time, and I would say this is true for my religious practice as well. It's very mundane and nothing really dramatic happens. And um, what I find fascinating, though, is the – and I'd be curious your reaction to this – at the highest level, whatever you want to call that, when – I was at one with a sparrow I watched for half an hour on retreat or, um, uh, you know, I had it, had a, an ability to slow my mind down and watch and be extremely expansive and watch thoughts arising. Just haven't been able to do it since, but it, but it is something to strive for. So it's really can be an extraordinary, uh, change in how you experience, as you say, just the most mundane parts of your life, seeing your wife who you've seen for in my case, 29 years, almost, um, your children, the flower that is blooming mm-hmm. by the door, the bird on the perched on your deck, et cetera, uh, they can have a vividness that is uh, that makes your hair stand on end in a beautiful, yeah. be- beautiful way, like, like a great piece of music. And yet I find the tug of my uh, default mode network to be so powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to take an example, I get annoyed at something, say, and instead of saying, which I know deep down and have at times been able to say, well, that's not me that's just that's mm, the anger that's my ego talking, yeah, that's my yeah. ego i don't and yet i kind of enjoy it and it's i guess it's <laughs> life a lifetime of enjoying it and it's it's very seductive uh well it's a kind of addiction actually yeah exactly i i i i see it as a form of of control that that i've become accustomed to and i think part of of a of a successful meditation practice a healthy meditation practice and maybe the healthy use of these kind of drugs is a, an ability to give up control because yeah. We're not in control, but we like to think we are.
1: Yes, and but that illusion of control gets a lot done, though, right? It gets yep. books oh, written. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it wins electoral races. Yeah, um, sure. So, I mean, there is a usefulness. The, you know, We evolved these egos for some reason, presumably, and that they are adaptive. Um, on the other hand, they're very harsh rulers, and they lead to a lot of unhappiness at the same time. And the ego can be very punishing. I mean, depression is… You know, part of the self punishing the other part of the self. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how Freud understood it. And, um, and I think there's some truth to that. So, but, you know, the thing with any practice, whether it's meditation or writing, you, you know, it's, it doesn't go well every day. You just, but you have to show up.
0: Get on the horse, yeah.
1: And Yeah, you get on the <laughs> horse. Just put in your hours or your minutes, whatever it is. And sooner or later things will happen. But if, you don't, if you're not there, if you don't show up, it's never going to happen.
0: recently we had on the program uh, Ian McGilchrist talking about his Mm. extraordinary book, uh, The Master and His Emissary, and his vision of the brain. The left side of the brain is smug, focused, narrow, uh, sure of itself, uh, analytical. And the right side of the brain is integrated, connected, fascinated by betweenness. And it just struck me that a lot of the descriptions you give of of, uh, psychedelic drugs are – very similar to what Miguel Chris describes as the right
1: side of His the brain. Right brain, yeah.
0: I, is there yeah. any of the fMRI stuff that shows up on the right side?
1: You know, <laughs> I, I love that book too, and I was very moved by it when I read yeah, it. It's a powerful and, book, uh, and very persuaded by it. But the more I talk to neuroscientists, and uh, that this idea that the two sides of the brain are fundamentally different. Um, and that that is has great explanatory power is very much out of fashion right now. And McGilchrist is well, he is,
0: concedes that, right? He, yeah, he knows that's true. He's a somewhat
1: lonely figure. I mean, yeah. I found it, I found it very persuasive. I don't have enough uh, knowledge to say, oh, this explains it. But, but definitely, his characterization of right brain thinking is um, uh, chimes with with my sense of the psychedelic experience and and the meditative experience too.
0: Yes, I don't. Obviously can't evaluate the neuroscience either, but I, I like just to think of McGilchrist's insight as just two different ways you can experience the world, uh, very yeah. focused and narrow or very integrated and connected and, and whether they have a
1: geography. Yeah, I or don't, not. Yeah, the I fact don't care. You do have multiple <laughs> ways of experiencing the world. Exactly. And how they're layered upon one another or where they're located is less important than the fact that this this default consciousness we have is just one way and and that there are other ways other perspectives that we can attain. And, and that's what strikes me as really exciting, that we're not stuck with this one pair of spectacles, uh, that there are sunglasses we can put on, that there are, you know, kaleidoscopes we can, we can put on, um, and uh, uh, that everyday normal waking consciousness is, is one species of consciousness. And it's good for certain things, but it's bad for other things. And there are other modes of consciousness that are better.
0: One of the other things that struck me reading your book, or I don't know if anyone's ever said this to you, it's kind of a strange illusion, but it reminded me of uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character in Close Encounters of the, Third Mo- of the Third Kind. So in that movie, uh, have you seen it? Yeah, I have. So, I'm just
1: trying to remember. So
0: in that movie, he he has this experience of being contacted by aliens, and they want him to go to this mountain in the middle of, of nowhere. And... Uh, he can't stop thinking about it. He's, every waking minute, he's shaping his potato, his mashed potatoes, into the shape of the mountain that he's been <laughs> encouraged to think about. And he's a pathetic figure for a while in the book because he's obviously just gone off 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 his rocker. He's just crazy. And it, what I what I thought was, there are many things I like about that movie, but one of the things I like about it is that if you really thought you were contacted by aliens, or if God had spoken to you you 'd be kind of focused on it, you know you wouldn 't kind of just say <laughs> to, casually to somebody yeah. uh, when they said anything new going on, yeah, by the way, you know just the other day in fact you 'd be like starting a conversation with it, and you 'd become right. in a way a, a very difficult figure to to be around because it 's all you 'd want to talk about and I got a little bit of that feeling from the people in the universe that you became in in orbit into the orbit of from the psychedelic world. These are people who 've been to a land they 've journeyed somewhere. That is uh, extraordinary. And they've come back and they, they are going to not just show you the slides from their trip, <laughs> <and a> few, <laughs> their Flickr page, but they do want to like uh, put it into a brochure and go door to door. And I'm curious, re- reflect on that. And in your own, your own journey, what, what you see as uh, it's obviously part of the reason you wrote this book. Um, do you feel that kind of pull to, to share the experience? When I came back from my retreat, I bored a lot of people.
1: You know, yeah, I said yeah.
0: I've changed. You know, I I can't believe what I saw. I had an amazing. They're like you were quiet for five days. I couldn't do that. Yes, you could. You could. <laughs> so there is this this I think evangelical Paul uh, part of it is can be literally religious for a person who's seen the light, but for others it's this glimpse of something deep and profound. Yeah, out. and
1: you're and you want to share it with the world. Yeah. And and I think that this is an occupational hazard. Um I think, you know, we saw this with Timothy Leary and we and great many other figures in this world. You know, it's this ego dissolution on the one hand um leads to ego inflation on the other. Um yeah. and that's one of the paradoxes of of Psychedelics that you have a lot of giant egos who've well, had this ego dissolving experience. Yeah, I'm the
0: humblest man in the world. <laughs> yeah, is, exactly.
1: You right. can't believe i You think you're yeah, humble? humble? I'm even correct. humbler. <laughs> um, and I think that has to do with this sense of having, you know, you've discovered some key to the universe and you want to tell everybody about it. And so in myself, I, you know, I, I've been, I guard against it. Um, and I have a son and a wife who help me guard against it. And, um, Uh, But I I do see it, and I actually see a lot of the researchers who are kind of trying in a very self-conscious way to keep a lid on it. I mean, people who, if you take them out for a drink, think that, you know, these molecules may have something really important to to contribute to saving our civilization. You know, they'll say this, and and I get where they're coming from, um, but you don't want to talk that way. Uh, and, it, you know, I don't know what you do with that. Um, I mean, it is – I'm struck by the fact that if the two biggest problems we face as a civilization are the environmental crisis, which, which is born of our failure to connect with nature and, and, and our ability to objectify nature and, and, and see it as, you know, ours to manipulate, extract, exploit. Um, that's one big problem. And then another, which is very similar, is tribalism which is the objectifying yep. of other kinds of people and, 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 and the inability to attribute humanity to them. Yep. Um, both of these problems are addressed by psychedelics, uh, and they're both the functions of ego consciousness, uh, of this kind of very egotistical way of looking at things as a zero-sum game, as there's always a winner and a loser, as I'm the thinking subject, you are the object of my thoughts. And that uh, psychedelics um, opens up those channels and makes it impossible, I think, to be a tribalistic person or a someone who is so cavalier about nature. Um, and so there are a lot of people, I think, who stand to gain um, and that if more people had this experience – perhaps it would have a, a positive effect on, um, you know, on the culture. But I don't know how many people would have to have that experience before it made a difference. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a tough question.
0: The other thing that I think about is our, one of our bigger challenges is um, meaning. And, and one thing that it comes through in your book is that this feeling that you're like, I, I don't understand it, because for me, it, it's, I see it through religion, and it, that works for me. It but I don't, it's not clear to me how this drug experience leads to a sense of meaning. I understand that if your life's transformed, if you care more about other people, it's a more pleasant and good life. But yet a lot of people feel that their lives are, quote, more meaningful. And that's, I yeah. think, a huge challenge of the of modern civilization is this feeling that that we're just pursuing pleasure and happiness. And the irony for me in reading your book is that people associate, the, associate those things with the abuse of drugs, right? The opioid crisis yeah. is pro- probably not unrelated to the crisis of meaning in, in, our, in our culture. Uh, and yet this drug, these drugs are helping people, quote, discover meaning.
1: Yeah, that's what I think uh, distinguishes them from other drugs. They're not simply soothing people or, um, you know, self-medicating, that they are helping people find meaning in the most ordinary things. And that's, you know, that's Quite remarkable, um, and you know they've they've demonstrated this experimentally that that the um, the receptors that LSD activates seem to be involved in the attribution of meaning to formerly meaningless things, and people do emerge from these experiences with a sense that meaninglessness is never where people end up, <laughs> they end up in this sense of. Things are just infused with um, significance uh, with somehow. significance um, and uh, to the point of sacredness in some yeah. cases. I mean that's the radical case of meaning, right
0: yeah.
1: and, um, and that's a very interesting thing because I, I think you're right. I think that is the crisis for lots of people is this what does it all mean and um, and, and without religion, where what's another source of meaning and um, uh, you know psychedelics seems to address that problem too so i don't know if this is a
0: fair um way to describe it but i you know i'm very interested in the tribalism challenge that we face and i think uh maybe it's from being a talk uh, uh, podcast host but i've tried to become less tribal as i've in the last few years and i see people indulging in harmless kinds of tribalism like rooting for um uh, sports a team. sports team or <laughs> other you know uh clubs of various kinds and I, I i get that but what i think i think deep down uh, this is not my insight, but I think deep down, uh, we crave a sense of belonging. Yeah. And a sports team satisfies that in a kind of a thin way, perhaps, but maybe not. I don't want to – I shouldn't judge it. Maybe it's not so thin. Maybe it's not much different than anything else. Obviously, religious communities try to do that. People's social causes try to do that. Uh, maybe what these drugs do, and certainly what I found in meditation retreat, is it does make you feel like you belong to the broader world in a way that you did not before. And that maybe is enough to create a sense of meaning.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had this in one of my psilocybin trips, another one than the one I was describing, I had this sense of being part of my garden. Uh, and, you know, in, in a relationship, uh, these rays of relation opened up between me and the plants in my garden and that, that they were That's subjects. Good. That's because you're a food and, guy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I've always, you know, I've always been entered into plants. Yeah. Um, but I saw them in a new way, and I felt, yeah, that was my team, uh, <laughs> this bunch of plants. So I think there is something to that. And um, people, you know, even like neo-Nazis, you know, it's, they have a, there's a narrative that organizes yeah. life, that gives meaning to everything. It's, it's a twisted narrative. But nevertheless, people are hungry for that. And, um, and if you make that sense of belonging be uh, nature – um, or your community in the best sense. Um, what a wonderful thing that can be.
0: My guest today has been Michael Poland. His book is How to Change Your Mind. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: My pleasure, Russ. Thanks a lot for having me.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast